0: Oh, well, first, I'm Jack. I know there's some faces here I don't recognize, so it either means you're new in our community, or uh, you're visiting this morning, or perhaps I forgot you. <laughs> I don't know. But I'm the lead pastor here for Bethany Northeast, and uh, great, great to be with you. Uh, we're in a series this summer called Summer Shorts, where we've been looking at uh, various short books in the Bible. So we, we spent the last several weeks in, yeah, I know, you're wearing shorts. Good job. He took, he took notes. Uh, we've been in, in the minor prophets the last several weeks in the Old Testament. We're moving to the New Testament, some of Paul's letters in the, in the end of the New Testament, as well as uh, in a couple of weeks, a couple of, of John's letters. Uh, so these are the shorter books of the Bible, hence some are shorts, also a pun. There you go. Let's take a moment to pray. God, thanks for uh, this chance we have to not only be in worship and be in community, but to now come in and under your word. Um, so we ask for you... God, the Word made flesh, Christ, to uh, reveal to us into our hearts, both personally as well as collectively, what you have for each of us this morning and our community. We're mindful of the city of Charlottesville this morning, as many in that city and then around our nation are um, yeah, asking questions and uh, perhaps even afraid uh, on both sides here. We just pray for peace. We thank you that you promise peace and so that we can claim it uh, as the church. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, hey, uh, this week, Elizabeth, my wife, and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. You can clap, yeah. And uh, I don't know why, but I I have have these file bins in the basement. Who knows why I keep files around, but one of those files I keep uh, is this file called Correspondence. (laughs) Kind of a wooden thing, but I keep letters in there, and letters from, like my daughter's first ever letter to me is in there, and letters from Elizabeth when we were dating, and, and then letters from various other people. And so I was digging through that, uh, just kind of reflecting on 15 years and things we used to write to each other when we had time. But as I was doing that, I was looking through letters also. I won't read any of those letters. That, that would be a little too intimate. So uh, I, I came across some letters that I've received from people in my life that I don't get to spend time with anymore. And uh, Students, I was a youth pastor right out of seminary. Uh, I was a camp counselor all throughout college. And so just letters like that from students and things that I had. One particular letter I received from a student that I had my first call right out of seminary at a, a church on Capitol Hill. Um, I was a youth pastor, just right out of, I mean, green, just straight out of seminary. And uh, I this little youth group. And I got this letter from one of the students who I uh, grew very close to. Uh, he, he sent it to me while we were in Pennsylvania. So I received on February 22nd, 2010. And he was a student at the the inn at UW and woohoo, go dogs. And so he wrote this letter to me and I'll just read this letter to you. It it just meant a lot to me this week. Hey Jack, uh, it's been a long time since I've heard from you or seen you. Crazy. Congratulations on little Elliot. So Elliot was just born. Uh, I'm so excited for you. I miss talking about Lost with you. I've been able to find a few people who were as fanatical as we were, which has been nice. Uh, This season's been crazy. I hope I didn't. Spoiler alerts or anything like that, but, you know, Lost. (laughs) Looking back on that, I'm like, what? Uh, I was in a small group, and since we were talking about people who were influential in our faith, you came to mind, and so now we're writing letters to those people. Thanks, Jack. Remember when we met in Mexico the first year, we used to go on these mission trips to Mexico and build houses and you were driving the pickup with me and getting some materials. We clicked and I remember talking about books. P.S. I read the Brothers Karamazov and I love it. Uh, ever since then, you've been a very positive influence in my life. You constantly pushed and encouraged me and t- to take my faith seriously. You also taught me to trust in God and step out in faith. All these things you taught me through the way you lived your faith and through the outpouring of that faith in my life. A better man because of that. Uh, I'm also currently dating a girl named Liz. She's—they're married now. <laughs> uh, she's pretty awesome. I think you'd like her. I do. Anyways, I miss you. I want you to know the impact you have had on my life. Sometimes it's just good to look back and see how God is using people to grab you. God bless you. Uh, letters are—how do I say this? Letters are, are these handwritten letters. I mean, I don't know if you get these anymore. We, most of the time, you get junk mail like i went out to the mailbox yesterday and there was one postcard from uh, i don't even know like pogliacci pizza pizza on capitol hill i mean i literally just went to the recycling bin and dropped it right you get junk mail these days rarely get letters and a letter handwritten letter uh, we often type notes to each other via email is the most personal and intimate way to express words right it's just there's something about it, right? Even as I'm reading that, I know a lot of you are probably thinking about people that you'd love to write. Uh, I got a book recently by Eugene Peterson. Um, it's a series of his sermons. It's called "As Kingfishers Catch Fire," and sermons when he was a pastor back in Maryland. And he wrote this about Paul. He says, "For those of us who learned theology in a classroom." We remember theology as primarily an attempt to understand faith in the form of propositions, abstractions, and explanations. I don't know how many of you that's true of, if you went to SPU or a seminary or whatever. But not so with Paul, who's the author of the letter we just heard read this morning. His theology is written to and in a community with a host of people in the context of living out their faith. Paul brings people to name in his theology. There's names. Uh, making sure we will not conceive theology as something impersonal something to think about and argue over without first living it. And thus, we're fortunate, listen to this, to have as our first and definitive Christian theologian, a person who worked at the meanings and relationships of this salvation life on the ground with people like us. All of it. Highs and lows, without exception, through the most personal form of writing letters. Paul's letter to Philemon. That's what we're looking at this morning. And speaking of uh, letters, Philemon being Paul's shortest letter, we heard the whole thing this morning. I don't know how many times you've been to church and you've actually read the whole book, but we we just did that. It's Paul's most personal, practical. There's no propositions, no abstractions. I don't know if you, there's no memorable verses in it that I can think of. Nothing that we memorized in Sunday school. Just pure, plain, simple theology. Where Paul's inviting Philemon, who, by the way, is a member of the church in Colossae, so if you have the book of Colossians, this is the same church. In fact, Onesimus, the person who's carrying this lever, he's letter to Philemon, he's the slave of uh, Philemon. He is thought to have carried both letters with him. So there's this personal letter, which is to Philemon, and I love some of the humor in there, you know. And then there's this collective letter, which is Colossians, and they connect. And he's writing this to them to, so that they could work out the meaning of salvation in the context of relationships. So it's a letter in which uh, Onesimus, having spent time with Paul while he was in prison, did you notice that? Uh, Paul's been in prison, in, likely in Rome. He's sent back to Philemon now by Paul. And, and how, by the way, how and why Onesimus was with Paul, we don't know, and nor does it matter. Many people have tried to conjecture this, whether he stole from Philemon, Philemon and then he's on the run, he's a runaway slave, that he fled from Philemon and he's seeking asylum and emancipation. Uh, or that he was sent uh, by Philemon to minister to Paul. In those days, in prison, we didn't, have, didn't there weren't laundry services. There wasn't a, there wasn't a, a dining hall. It was just like you're on your own. So you often could lean on your your community to to care for you. So he could have been sent there. But none of those details matter because Paul doesn't mention them. So how and why Ph- uh, Onesimus ends up with Ph- uh, Paul doesn't matter. Paul tells us what matters. It's it's how and why Onesimus is being sent back to Philemon. That's the point of this letter. Not how he got there, but how he's going back. Uh, And and here's here's how he's being sent back. Uh, He's being sent back so that Philemon and Onesimus could, could... There's something wrong in their relationship. Their relationship has apparently been strained by something, some factor... And, and there's a need for them uh, in their relationship to, to seek forgiveness. And a, there's a profound opportunity now for them to experience the grace of God. To put it in just a nutshell, Paul's sending Philemon or Onesimus back to Philemon so they might together in and through their re- relationship to Christ reconcile. It's a book about reconciliation, which hear me, in a weekend like this. Uh, this was on the books. We were going to look at Philemon months ago. Uh, as these events in Charlottesville unfold, the, the reality of our need for reconciliation, both racially as well as socially, politically, spiritually, is not just vivid, it's visceral, and it's vital. We, we're witnessing like horror right now. Uh, racism, evil, intolerance, just deep-seated bigotry where people drive cars into crowds of, uh, of of protesters. We have this profound need for reconciliation. I don't care that we live so far removed on the West Coast. Uh, I've got good friends in Charlottesville. We need, we need healing and reconciliation on so many fronts. Having said that, <laughs> remember what I said at the very beginning. We must not attempt to do theology and reconciliation is part of that exercise of theology. Reflection on, the, on who God is and how God calls us to live. Uh, we must not do theology as a mere concept or theory. Remember what I said. What Scripture teaches us this morning as we come to this letter Written to Philemon, a personal letter that we just happen to have in our Bibles, we dare not abstract this concept of reconciliation, this profound vision that Jesus articulated himself. Merely think about it and go home, or worse, argue about it on Facebook without first living it. We're being called to live reconciliation out. Inasmuch as Paul frames it inside this very personal letter, it's it's about personal relationships being made whole that's reconciliation. Right, restored. And so we're being called to live as a reconciled community, okay? Uh, David Leong, who's a professor at Seattle Pacific Seminary, he recently wrote a book that I've been reading called Race and Place, How Urban Geography Shapes the Journey of Reconciliation. I'd recommend it if you're into like um, sociology, geography, that kind of stuff. At what point in the book he asks a series of these questions And one of the questions he asks is, what does it mean to be a reconciling community? What does it mean, what does it look like for us to be a reconciling community? Uh, Knowing that, yes, reconciliation has happened on the cross, but how do we continue that work as people who follow Christ? What's the nature and character of a Christian community like ours in a world like this that's so broken, right? And so full of bigotry. What do we have to offer the world, if anything? And to answer that question, he, he... quotes Will Willimon and and, uh, Stanley Hauerwas. He says, we serve the world by showing it something that it is not. We serve the world by showing it something that it is not, by creating a space, a place, a people whereby God can form a family out of strangers. And the key here is not merely strangers like, you know, I did that greet, you met somebody new. No. Great that you met somebody new. Strangers in this sense. In the sense of people who've been socially estranged from each other, racially estranged from each other, Politically estranged from each other, spiritually estranged from each other. God's forming a family in amongst and between us, reconciling us to each other, to himself. Inasmuch as we become part of that family, (laughs) agree to join that family, we are strangers reconciled to each other and to God. And then inside of that community, the world can say, there's hope. Because of that community, the world can say there's hope. And so the question on the table, as we come in the wake of this or in the midst of this stuff in Charlottesville, where there's this palatable sense of of brokenness and confusion, how do we, and I'm talking about us now, serve the world by showing it something that it's not? Can we? Like Bethany Northeast, hundred some of you gathered right now. Can we show the world out there something that it's not? Do you have it? How do we live in relationship with each other, uh, a family of absolute strangers, in love with Christ, in love with each other, that includes each other in our uniqueness and difference? Uh, Philemon is the letter that I think in the Bible helps us discover that, more profoundly than most, I think, if not not all of them. And so what we're going to do this morning is, is just look at this letter through the lens of its characters, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, and the posture in which each of them stands, and then what we can learn from them about this big idea, okay? And then how, as we walk out of here, how we can live as a reconciling community, okay? You'll notice in your bulletin, if you got one of those this morning, uh, it says, the I don't have mine, and you gave me, tried to give me two, Ben, sorry. It says in there uh, something about created, and then there's a blank, like fill-in-the-blank thing, just to keep your attention. That was an early version of my outline, so it's slight difference, but similar. So instead of created... F- Four and then a blank. It's, I want to I invite us to look at the Paul, like Paul's posture of, and then there'll be a blank there. So we'll look at Paul's posture of Onesimus and Philemon's posture of, and then our posture of. Okay, and kind of let's look at what's the posture of a reconciling community. Okay, how do we stand in that posture? Okay, are you with me? So the first thing I want to look at here is Paul's posture of gentleness. Okay, and you'll see this in verses uh, kind of eight to ten. But the, the first thing Paul teaches us here in this letter. In, that in order to experience the fullness of reconciliation offered to us in Christ, in order to be ambassadors, as Paul says in Second Corinthians five, of reconciliation, we need to stand in this posture of gentleness toward each other. Indeed, we need to learn to speak gently to each other. So, what does it look like to stand in a posture of gentleness? Well, if you if you if you heard this and and when our students read this, like the very beginning of the letter, here's what Paul says: "Grace to you." This is him speaking to Philemon. "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ." Verse 4, when I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because you have your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord. And then in verse 7, he says, uh, I've indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. Do you hear the tenderness with which he speaks to Philemon? Here's my question, though. Is that gentleness? And I mean, like this sort of... Uh, you know, it it looks like Paul's just kind of being placid, right? Like just buttering Philemon up for the, hit him in the gut like he's this glass half full guy, always optimistic. We have those people in our lives, you know, not a bad bone in their bodies, could never say a bad word. And is that, like, Jack, so what? That's great. How is that going to move the needle, especially in the wake of what we've just seen the last couple days? It's so much just vile speech, right? How is gentleness in that framework Going to help move us toward reconciliation. Well, in some ways, it's it's not <laughs> love that Paul says those things. But look at what he says very next in verses eight and nine. So if you have it open again, and by the way, this is right after right before the book of Hebrews. If you're having trouble finding it, so flip, find Hebrews and then go back a page. It's just like a one-page deal. He says this, all these nice things, and then for this reason, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty yet I'd rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Though I'm bold enough to command you to do your duty, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And this is where he's getting to the meat of the matter. He's going to to ask Philemon to set Onesimus free. Interestingly, what Paul does here is he sets up a a contrast between a command and an appeal. And And that's what it looks like to stand in a posture of gentleness. And here's what I mean by that. This word appeal, I mean, we, we understand it, but it implies making a request, but a request with a strong emotional investment. He has a strong emotional investment in this. In contrast with a command, uh, there are different frameworks of, of relationships. A command, you know this, like if you've been in the military, a command is a, is a is a request or a demand between two official parties on two different social or political locations, whereas an appeal, if you have kids often or a spouse or a good friend, is often within a sphere of personal relationships. Like last night, Elliot, I appealed to you to go take a shower, (laughs) you know? I'm not going to yell at him because I just know that though that might work, he'll begin to resent me later. So I appeal to you. And I get down to this level, and it happens. And we have a great evening together. So do you see it? What a wise friend Paul is to Philemon. He knows that goodness cannot be forced. That the gospel cannot be squeezed out of somebody by compulsion. That grace can't be squeezed out of a person. You can't get grace out of a person like a sponge. He knows that no amount of pressure, either mental, physical, or emotional, can increase or stimulate, uh, or develop a life of faith, that, that the response to revelation, Philemon's been given some revelation, especially if you read Colossians 3, where he says, there's no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free. We're all one in Christ. He has to respond to that revelation and that cannot, it has to be discovered, not demanded. And so it's up to Philemon to just set Onesimus free. Uh, because the gospel is a gospel of freedom. And we, our response to it expressed in love has to be a, a free response, not a command and control response. That's what it means to stand in a posture of gentleness. It's the authority of the message of the gospel that, that Paul stands on and that finally is being invited to respond to. Like he says this in verse 14 that your goodness, your goodness might not be out of compulsion but out of your own free will. That's the bottom line right there. So the, the motivation behind reconciliation for us today has to be love, first and foremost, or it's nothing. If it comes from hatred, bitterness, malice, hurt, those are the things we need to deal with first and then start pursuing This work of reconciliation. And like I said, that does not mean that we come to people like Paul maybe does. I don't know exactly why he says all those good things about Philemon first. Maybe he was just a good guy. But it doesn't mean we come to people with this do-whatever-you-want attitude. You know, like your truth. Just do your truth, man. This nimby, namby-pamby, washishy-washy about things. No. Do Do you know that famous proverb? I think it's Proverbs 25. It's, I think it's 25, 15. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. A gentle tongue can break a bone. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Have you ever broken a bone? I've broken a lot of bones, mostly on my left side. I've got all kinds of screws and things in my left side. I love how the message translation of this proverb puts it. Patient persistence pierces through indifference. Gentle speak breaks down rigid defenses. Patient persistence pierces through indifference gentle speech breaks down rigid defense. So one of the commentators on that proverb who knows something about Hebrew idioms, this is a Hebrew idiom, he says that to break a bone means to break down the most hardened resistance to an idea a person might possess. We've seen a lot of hardened resistance these last two days. And gentleness, the promise in Scripture is gentleness, can break that down. Gentleness can break that down. Gentle speech, but it, it can be pointed it can be fierce. It, it, it can be blunt. It's just that it does so. If it's truly gentle, in a way that undermines indifference, does not belittle people. Do you see the difference? So it's about love winning the day, not you or me, not our argument. Uh, so a gentle word, though bone-breakingly clear, in, in tone, in purpose, in voice, in motivation, must always, always be motivated by a heart of compassion, born out of love. Do you hear that? Over the weekend, I, I did something that I've been doing a lot lately, read, reread Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail. So, I'm a pastor. He wrote this to some white pastors who had told him to kind of cease and desist from the civil rights movement to kind of just trust the government to do their work. And so, they, they put this white paper in the, the newspaper, an open letter to him. He saw it, was in jail at the time, and decided, if you know the story, write this letter to them, open letter to them on the newspaper, (laughs) like wrote this amazing letter to them. Obviously, as a white pastor myself, this is a convicting letter, maybe to you as well. So each time the last few years that one of these episodes like Charlottesville has happened, I take that letter out and I read it. And here's what he said. Uh, in one point in that letter just as an example of gentleness he says this i've traveled the length and breadth of alabama mississippi all the southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings i've looked at her beautiful churches with lofty spires pointing heavenward i've beheld the impressive outline of her massive religious education buildings over and over again i found myself asking what kind of people worship here who is their god Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barrett Barnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave the clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when tired, bruised, and weary black people, men and women, decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to bright hills of creative protest? These questions are on my mind today. This is King. I... In deep disappointment, I've wept over the laxity of the church. And be assured, though, here's the gentleness my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love first. I love the church, I love her sacred walls. How could I not? I am a rather unique person, being a son, a grandson, and great grandson of preachers, Preacher King. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and fear of being nonconformists. <laughs> There's nothing more persuasive than gentleness when it comes to reconciliation. Nothing. And so we need to learn to stand in that posture as we engage our community. Are you with me? That's the first thing we learned from Paul, and it's a great thing. Here's the second. It's from Philemon and Onesimus, and it's about their posture of courage. So both of them demonstrate this need, that, that reconciliation happens in relationships when both, both you have victim and you have perpetrator or whatever, both parties must stand in a posture of courage. So what does that mean? How does that look inside their relationship? And what does that have to do with uh, reconciliation? Well, let's start with Onesimus. We'll break these two down. Look at verse 11. Paul says, "I'm sending Onesimus back to you, who was useless in one translation, but is now useful." Okay, actually, uh, I mean, there's a there's a pun here. <laughs> it's like a dad joke. Uh, Onesimus' name literally means useful, so he says he was useless to you, but now he's useful. Uh, now think, but think of the implications. Put the pun aside. I don't know that it really means much. Uh, of Onesimus going back to Colossae, the city where he had lived as a slave, into Philemon's house. Think of the different scenarios. If he was a runaway slave, let's just say that he was, it was incredibly risky for him to return. Nothing short of of severe punishment, if not death. Even if he was sent by Philemon to Paul, let's say that happened, what sort of environment do you think he's going to return to? Like, how do you think Onesimus was previously viewed and treated if he's been thought of as useless? I mean, most commentators say that he, this is a, this shameless pun, uh, really, it, it gets to the fact that, though, that, that slaves, to use Aristotle's language, were nothing more than animate articles of property in those days. But Onesimus, as a particular type of slave, a Phrygian slave, which had a stereotypical bad reputation. So one commentator goes as far to say that Phrygian slaves belonged to the most disreputable and untrustworthy class of slaves, the lowest of the low, typically lazy, often thieves. Uh, So his offense, if he had committed an offense, didn't differ. So far as we know, this is just to quote this commentator, from the vulgar type of slavish offenses common among his own class. Couldn't expect more from this guy. Useless. And so Paul... (laughs) He could have been alluding to this prevailing mindset, this social reality, this prejudice, deep ingrained prejudice that Onesimus would have had to return to. It doesn't matter that Paul says, hey, see him as a different person. So the prospect of return, no matter the circumstances of his departure, are risky, to say the least, I think. And for him to go back, think of the questions on his mind as he's carrying this letter. How will Philemon treat me? Like, uh, Will he tear this letter up when he reads it and then get to the door? Will he abuse me? Will he have me arrested? What about the other slaves in the household? They already hate me. How will they treat me? What if Philemon does set me free? What if he casts me out into the city to live on my own? There's a saying in that time, once a slave, always a slave. How will I be treated in the city? I'm a Phrygian. Is that what I want? (laughs) It's a risky proposition to say the least for him, despite having this letter in his hand. And it took an immense amount of courage. So what about, that's his courage. What about Philemon's courage? Where's that evident? Well, look at verse 16 with me. Paul says this, he's no longer a slave, like a slave to you. He's more than a slave. He's a be- beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Both in the flesh and in the Lord. There's a key right there. In other words, more than merely viewing Onesimus through a new subjective reality. He's a brother in Christ, man. He's got a new name. Paul's inviting Philemon to literally grant Onesimus a new status in, in his household, a brother in the flesh. This is so huge. Uh, it's an unambiguous call for Philemon and Paul to reshape Onesimus's identity as a person, from an animate article of property to a member of Philemon's family. Remember this idea of strangers becoming family? He's talking about reconciliation. As one commenter says, no longer a slave meant more than, and more than a slave, a beloved brother isn't merely metaphor. Paul's not using metaphor. He, he's saying it significant, has significant legal implications. When Paul's inviting Philemon to receive Onesimus both in a new network of relationships as a, in a family and regard him with a new identity, a full person, a full person. And that, my friends, I mean, wow. Think of your, if you're Philemon. This has massive implications. You know the story, perhaps, of the, the prodigal son from Luke 15. Jesus' most famous parable. Love this parable. Remember this story? A, a, par- a better description of the story, a better title I've heard is the parable of the two lost sons because there's two sons in the story. We like to focus on the younger brother who's just this misfit. There's two. So you have the younger brother. Remember what he does? He goes to his father and says, hey, give me what's mine, my inheritance. And while he's still alive, by the way, you can't take an inheritance while you're alive. Implication there is I, I, you're, I wish you were dead, dad. And then he goes away and he squanders it all, right? Remember this story? So one significant implication of this request was that everything that the father now had left, he divided his property in half, where does the other half go? If it's an inheritance, it goes to the elder brother. Everything he has, this is how inheritance works. All of his material wealth, his investments, his, his clothing, his food, his house, everything, that constitutes the elder brother's inheritance. And so when this prodigal comes back and says to his dad, I'm penniless, I'm a fool, I just squandered everything. Take me back as a slave. And then the father says to him, no, 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 no. Get the robe. Get the ring. Prepare a table. Kill the calf. Make a bed for him. (laughs) Did you see what he's saying? (laughs) He's saying he's giving the elder brother's inheritance away to this younger brother. And the elder brother knew that. He knew that. This is why he's out in the field so pissed off. He's bitter because the father is taking his stuff. He's saying, Dad, you cannot do that. You can't welcome this young punk. I don't know what punk is in Greek, but you can't welcome him back into our family. There's no way because that's my robe. That's my ring. That's my calf. Cath- that's my table. My party. You're, you're costing me a lot of money. At, 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 it's my expense. It was costly for this elder brother to take his younger brother back, and would have been co- it would have been costly. Do you see this correlation for Philemon to take Onesimus into his household as a brother, no longer a slave, a beloved brother, as, as, as part of the family? I mean, he's saying, divest yourself, Philemon. Onesimus is what's yours is his. Your household, your wealth. Your table, or his table, his family, your name is his now. It's his. Do you see? I mean, it would have been a radical invitation in that day. I mean, perhaps today too. I don't think many of us can understand this, uh, unless perhaps we've adopted or are fostering children. It would have taken an immense amount of courage for Philemon to follow through with this invitation. He's becoming poorer because of this. So so for both Onesimus and Philemon, uh, reconciling, it just took incredible courage. Reconciliation sounds nice, right? It just even rolls off the tongue. Reconciliation. We love books about this, right? We love the speeches that Martin Luther King preached about this. But in reality, look at this letter. It's messy. It's risky. It's painful. It's going to require confession and forgiveness and work, and it requires courage, especially If you put yourself in Philemon's shoes as we must today, when we think about all the things we own, our privilege, our power, our rights, it takes courage for us to step into conversations about race. Conversation where where people might come to us and say, This is very hard for me, and for us to own that together. But when we do, that's when we begin to see healing and restoration. And reconciliation happened. About a year ago, many of you know uh, I went off to Rwanda. Yeah, about a year ago. Bethany has a partnership with uh, World Relief Rwanda. Actually, we have a team leaving Tuesday. So I'd love to invite you if you would be just remembering this. Plant a seed. We have a team in Rwanda this coming week. I'm not going to be there. Pray for them. Not because I'm not going to be there. Actually, they're going to be very better off. But. Uh, So last summer I'm preparing to visit Rwanda, and I came across this New York Times magazine article entitled Portraits of Reconciliation. Go ahead and throw that picture up, Greg. It's an article that catalogs these personal stories of reconciliation in Rwanda 20 years after. This was published in uh, 2014. 20 years after the genocide. A million people died in this genocide. And these are stories that are the product of. Uh, I'm going to kill this, Kevin. There's a French word here Association Modeste and Innocent, something like that. AMI, okay? They work, this organization works in Rwanda with small groups of Hutus and Tutsis. So you have the perpetrators and the victims over many months in small groups, helping them reconcile. Uh, so reconciliation in these conversations culminates in this way with the perpetrator going to the victim and extending a formal request for forgiveness. So in this article in the New York Times, and you can look it up, again, it's entitled Portraits of Reconciliation. They have different pictures of perpetrators and victims side by side, and then some of the things they said about each other or about their journey. So I'm just going to read one. This is a caption from this picture, and I'm not even going to try and say their names because they're like super long and lots of consonants, but... Um, on the, on the left side is, this, is the perpetrator here, and the right side is the victim. So I'm going to read this left caption first. This is the man on the left. He says, I asked him for forgiveness because his brother was killed in my presence. He asked me why I pleaded guilty, and I replied that I did it as someone who witnessed this crime but who was unable to save anybody. It was the order of the authorities to do so. I let him know who the killers were, and the killers also asked him for pardon. Here's the survivor. Sometimes justice does not give someone a satisfactory answer. Cases are subject to corruption. When it comes to forgiveness, willingly granted, one is satisfied once and for all. When someone is full of anger, he can lose his mind. But when he's granted forgiveness, I felt my... When I granted forgiveness, I felt my mind come to rest. Remember that song we sang earlier? I will rest reconciliation brings us to a place of rest. It took an immense amount of courage for these two men and all the perpetrators and victims in this story to stand face to face, tell the truth and then to say, I forgive. Now that's a graphic example. Perhaps it's really hard for you to relate to, but here's how, here's the question I'd like you to ponder as we go to the last point here, where in your life do you need to lean into courage more? Uh, so that healing, forgiveness, truth, reconciliation might be discovered. I mean, are there people that you know in your life that need to come back together again? Maybe it's not a racial issue. Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's friendship. Maybe it's in a family. I've had good people that helped me in my, my relationship with my parents reconcile. Bring us together. Perhaps you're in Onesimus or Philemon's shoes. You're feeling vulnerable right now. Charlottesville's happening. You're uncertain of how to respond to things that are happening out there how might you lean into courage by going to someone and saying, this is really hard and scary for me? Or how might you receive someone in your life as a brother? (laughs) Like, sit at table with them and say, will you teach me what it means to be in relationship with you? Uh, Despite difference, despite hurt, whether unintentional or intentional, where do you need to ask God for a new posture of courage? Okay, be thinking about this. So that's the second thing. We have a posture of gentleness, posture of courage. And then I just want to invite us to kind of, I've already been doing this, but kind of invite us to get into the story as as characters in this letter. And this is the posture of curiosity and hopefulness, our posture. This is where Paul says in verse 15 of Philemon, perhaps, perhaps, this is speaking of why Onesimus was with him. Perhaps this is why he was part of you, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. So this perhaps, he's kind of speaking to this fact that in their time together, Onesimus encountered Jesus in a new way. Perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while. So you might have him back forever. Forever. This uh, perhaps is, far, like I said, m- far more significant. It it's, constitutes a posture of curiosity and hopefulness. And that informs reconciliation. The Greek for perhaps is this word taxa. And it's a it's a marker in a sentence that expresses contingency. We do the same thing in English. It's only used one other time in the New Testament in Romans five verse seven. In both places, Uh, it's not intended to express doubt or uncertainty, as we often use that word. Well, perhaps I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Rather, it's a call, as scholars understand it, for further deliberation to see beyond what is apparent. Some commentators call this Paul's cautious added thought. I love that. It's a cautious added thought, perhaps. Have you thought about this? Others say that Paul's pointing to divine involvement in the story. In any case, what Paul's inviting Philemon and by proxy us to consider is that something else is going on in this story. Perhaps this is why he was parted from you. And to see that something through the eyes of faith... There's this great illustration of this principle in the book of Genesis chapter 50, at the end of Joseph's life. uh, His brothers, you know this story maybe, are forced to come to him for help. There's this famine in Israel. There's this incredible food insecurity. And so they come to Egypt for aid and they, they, unbeknownst to Joseph, come to Joseph who's their brother. They don't recognize him. He's ascended to the role of prime minister. (laughs) Very powerful. This is the same Joseph they threw into a pit. Uh, he's this young punk. They sell him into slavery. They try to kill him. Because, see, he's a threat to them. Go back to inheritance. He's their father's favorite. He's going to get it all. And they're going to bow down to him. And then to add insult to injury, Joseph is in slavery, and at one point he's framed by the wife of his employer or his captor. He's put in prison. And any day he could be executed there, any day. And all the while, he has his perspective. God's at work. God's moving. God's in my life. Until this day, they come to him for help. And he has to face them. Think of this, these two men and reconcile with them. And you know what he says to them? Remember that, Genesis fifty twenty: What you intended for evil, God meant for good. Do you know what Joseph is doing there? <laughs> God's not making lemonade out of lemons. That's not what this point, it's not like some fairy tale. I remember some years ago, I was driving somewhere with a friend and I had this new car. Well, actually it was a 1969 Opal Cadet. Uh, It's like my favorite car. I bought it from this older lady that lived next to me in Tacoma and she always kept this cover on it. So I talked to her one day and said, hey, what's that? And it was this car that her husband had bought, had 3,000 miles on it, mint condition. She sold it to me for 500 bucks. I drove into the ground, unfortunately. So I'm on this long road trip with a friend. And we're driving from Tacoma to Denver. Don't do that with a 69 Opal Cadet, by the way. Uh, and the gas gauge is getting lower and lower and lower. And I'm looking at the, as I'm looking at the gas gauge, I'm wondering when we should stop. There's not a lot of gas stops if you drive from Denver to, or Tacoma to Denver, like Wyoming. There's nothing. And so you can see where this is going. My friend looks at me and says, hey, the, the gas gauge is getting a little empty. Perhaps we should stop sometime soon. And I'm like, "Nah, there's like an eighth of a tank left. We have time. Let's keep going. Look at the mountains, you know. And no, 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 it's below empty now. I'm like, no, it's an eighth full. We have plenty of gas. And of course, next thing you know, within like a second after I said that, the car just shuddered and came to a halt on the freeway, like in the middle of nowhere. And I sat back. I'm six foot two. My passenger was five foot two. And I leaned down and looked at the gas gauge from a five foot two level, and I said, Oh, yeah, it's empty. <laughs> and you see it. Like, I wasn't looking at this situation from the perspective my passenger was looking at it. I was looking at it from a six foot two perspective. She was looking at it from a five foot two perspective. Same thing with Joseph. He's looking at it from one place, his brother's from another. Same thing with Paul here in Philemon. He's looking at it from one place, Philemon from another. Same thing with God. Uh, Joseph's looking at the gas gauge of his life from down, down deep. He's saying, No, 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 God is up to something. And, and God is going to make good from this. And here's my point the Bible says that reconciliation in the future of this world is like a gas gauge. <laughs> Like, that for us to realize the promises of the gospel that are declared by Paul himself in Romans, neither death nor life, angels, demons, present, future, powers, think of the powers right now, height, depth, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. This is nothing. I mean, it is something, trust me, but God has. He's working this out. Jesus, Revelation 21, I've come to make all things new all of it. I'm at work today. Will you see that. For us, working in this world right now, fractured, like we have to look at life from another perspective. We're being invited to do that. We have to say to our hearts, with whatever others intend for evil, God is going to use for good. And no, God does not love evil. He hates racism. He hates that. But God, as Martin Luther King once said, uh, powerfully, evil may shape the events that Caesar can occupy a palace and Christ a cross. That's not a good thing. But that same Christ will rise up, split history into AD and BC, so even life and Caesar must be dated by his name. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We are bending toward justice right now. And that's hard, I know. It's hard to like, hear today. But begin to look from a different point of view. The gas gauge of these current events from a five of two perspective, when you do, you'll realize, oh, if you're curious enough, uh, hopeful enough, God, what are you doing today? How are you shaping history? How are you using these terrible days we're living in to bring about renewal? And how can I be a part of that? See, we'll find God showing the world that Something that it's not. Forming a family out of complete strangers, reconciling us when we begin to stand in these postures. Just gentleness, uh, curiosity, hopefulness, great courage. That's the invitation this morning. So here's what I want to do. Just by way of conclusion, I'm going to invite our worship team forward. Talk to the beginning. I want to invite you just to pray at the end. Uh, Just turn to someone. You may have come with them you may not have. And take like a minute to respond in praying. And you can respond by praying around maybe a couple different things. Maybe just ask God around one of these three areas for his help. Maybe it's specifically praying around what's happening in Charlottesville. Uh, Maybe it's thanking God for what he's already doing and will promise to do because of those promises that I already declared. So turn to somebody, just take a minute to do this, and then Adam and our team will lead us back into worship.